what we saw when we performed this on the first patient uh, the beginning of January 2020 is that they required no pain medicine in the recovery room, which actually blew us all away. We didn't, we, we were confident that it was gonna help, but we, we were blown away by how successful it was. Um, nowhere had we seen this being done in, in any sort of research or literature. This is the Innovatively Speaking podcast brought to you by the Medical University of South Carolina. It's the place where we dive into the origins of the next big things, the who, the why, and the how. We explore ideas that are changing what's possible here at the Medical University of South Carolina, and in some cases, all across the world. I'm Kevin Smith here in the MUSC podcast studio with my co-host, Dr. Jesse Goodwin, who is the Chief Innovation Officer here at MUSC. Good morning, Dr. Goodwin. Good morning, Kevin. Today, we're going to be talking to Dr. Nicole McCoy. Dr. McCoy is a physician who specializes in anesthesia and perioperative medicine and pediatric anesthesia, and she's been working on some innovation pertaining to the field of bone marrow transplants. I think this is going to be an interesting episode today. I agree. So I first became aware of Dr. McCoy and her work in the field uh, through an article that was recently published. And uh, it caught my attention because it combined two topics uh, that I'm interested in. One, because I have a personal interest in bone marrow uh, transplant. I've always thought about being a bone marrow donor um, and have never signed up. Um, And then two, opioids, because it's just such a timely topic. And so I'm really interested to to hear about her work and, and to learn a little bit more about myself. And maybe it'll finally push me across that line to actually sign up myself. All right, well, let's dive right in. Well, Dr. McCoy, welcome to the MUSC podcast studio. Thank you for having me. Yeah, we're, we're glad you're here. The subject matter on the table today is the whole idea of bone marrow transplants and the fact that they're just, it's a lifesaver, particularly for certain diseases and cancers. Can you maybe discuss a little bit about, in lay terms, what a, a bone marrow transplant is? and what, what's, what it does. Sure, and, and just as a little caveat, my role with these patients is more on the harvesting side. So um, in terms of the anesthesia and the care that I provide, it's for the patients who are actually um, donating bone marrow to recipients who will then undergo a bone marrow transplant. So um, I would say I am not the expert in bone marrow transplantation necessarily. That's why this was a fantastic multi-collaborative project with um, the bone marrow transplant physicians, Dr. Hudspeth specifically. Um, She is the expert. I was able to take on the role of caring for the the donor and and basically uh, the procedure itself is a is a procedure where either someone related or unrelated so for example if you sign up through be the match you would be an unrelated donor you'd be selected out of a large pool of people to donate bone marrow um, or peripheral blood stem cells to another person in the world um, you would uh, be recruited to a, an institution that undergoes or provides the harvesting procedure and then your bone marrow would be shipped off to a recipient. Again, it can be anywhere in the world. So that's the really unique thing is we've done a lot of harvests here and our bone marrows will go all over the world to patients in need. Um, You can also have related donors. So family members uh, donating on behalf of either their child, their parent, or their sibling. So those those are the two types of patients that I specifically take care of. Uh, related and unrelated donors. And that's kind of how um, my role has been in the transplantation process. Okay. And that's, uh, that brings us back to Dr. Goodwin here. Um, Tell us a little bit about your interest in becoming a donor and maybe what are some of the things that um, were holding you back? 
Yeah, so I had a sister who passed away from cancer several years ago, um, and when she was undergoing treatment, um, my parents had stayed at Ronald McDonald House in Texas because she was out of state um, getting care, and there was a family there who was, you know, had a child who had cancer, and they were looking for a bone marrow donor. And I think ever since then, I've always been a bit intrigued by this idea of, you know, just being able to sign up and voluntarily help someone, you know, save a life, like, and how impactful that could be. But I think that my hesitation for doing it has really just been sort of a lack of full awareness of what's involved in it um, as a donor, right? And so what does it mean to sign up? What's the likelihood that I would end up um, being a match, although I know it's pretty low? And then what's that actual procedure and recovery time look like? And, you know, I think sometimes it's sort of that a little bit of inertia, not knowing someone who had done it, um, that to ask a lot of questions to has um, probably been sort of just not not a real impediment, but I haven't had that, you know, sort of momentum to actually get on a registry. Although for 20 years now, I've been every year periodically, I'm like, I should probably sign up. <laughs> and then somehow I don't end up doing it, but, uh, but maybe oh, I gonna, will. We'll, we'll solve that. We'll solve that by the end of this conversation, right? Um, so, well, okay, let me step back and kind of tell you exactly how I got involved. Not only is it just a, it's a fantastic population, because obviously you're caring for someone who is doing this super altruistic, amazing thing for maybe someone they don't even know. Um, But as before the children's hospital broke away from um, the main hospital, our our ORs were all integrated. And as a pediatric anesthesiologist, it's a, just a unique situation. The bone marrow transplant harvest physicians are actually both pediatric uh, hematologists, oncologists. So by way of that, the, the bone marrow harvests were all happening in our pediatric ORs. By way of that, it ended up being one of us, pediatric anesthesiologists staffing, usually adult patients. So I had a period of time, this was in January of 2020, where I was able to take care of a couple uh, patients back to back who underwent bone marrow harvest. I didn't really know much about the procedure. I wasn't signed up um, through the National Marrow Donor Program yet. and I was intrigued by number one, like how, how amazing this is, how it works specifically. And when you learn a little bit about the procedure, um, it is, it looks painful. We, we don't want to obviously scare people away from being donors. That's the primary purpose of this is to encourage people to become donors and not be scared of things like pain and, and opioid use afterwards. But, um, it uh, looked uncomfortable and patients were honestly very uncomfortable in the recovery room. I, I spoke with uh, Dr. Hudspeth and she also has a unique perspective because she was actually a bone marrow donor. So she's been through it herself before through the National Marrow Donor Program through Be The Match. And so she had some perspective to share and to what it's like and you know what recovery was like. And she's like, if we can do anything to make recovery or hesitancy for donor for donors um, better then by all means let's do it so what we changed was um, the way we numbed up basically a patient's back uh, for good pain relief afterwards um, so by way of um, incorporating some other actually multiple groups of physicians nursing staff the nurse coordinator through the um, oncology or the bone marrow transplant department we were able to now incorporate this new procedure which is a regional anesthesia technique meaning we with a teeny tiny needle we inject some numbing medicine 
in the low back and it actually can keep you numb for up to 24 to 36 hours some of our patients are even saying 48 hours it's hard to really confirm that but basically at least a day of of comfort and so what we saw when we um when we performed this on the first patient uh the beginning of january 2020 is that they required no a pain medicine in the recovery room which actually blew us all away we didn't we we were confident that it was going to help, but we we were blown away by how successful it was. Um, nowhere had we seen this being done in, in any sort of research or literature. Contrast that to what it would be like without this new procedure. Sure. So the process before was that the proceduralist would put in some numbing medicine, but right where the small incision was. And and, and that's more of a called a field block. And, it, and in some cases it works great, but it's not as reliable. So we offered to uh, for that you know we had a great plan like let's switch this out instead of you doing this let let our anesthesia team do it and see what we get like see what happens and we had a really fantastic first patient who was very amenable to participating in something new and different and she was very pleased at the result so the spinal block that you're doing now um, from a procedural standpoint how similar is it to like an epidural which is pretty common good question and that's actually a little bit of a confusing part so there there's actually two parts so you can get you can have a spinal um, which is a one-time injection in the low back we often use this for women having c-sections to numb you up enough to have surgery um, so that you're comfortable Um, and and actually um, one a group of patients that we uh, had in in the um, in our basically our cohort did undergo spinal instead of having a breathing tube placed. So the, so there's kind of two different things like how to have anesthesia in the OR to have your procedure successfully, and then another type like regional anesthesia where that's focusing mainly on post-operative, some intra-op but mostly post-operative pain control. So some patients, yes, they did get a spinal. The difference with an epidural is that's a catheter that stays in. Spinal is just a one-time numbing shot. Um, This regional anesthesia block actually goes uh, on both sides with a small needle in between some muscle layers. It it goes nowhere near any major structures like the spinal cord or the spinal nerves. Um, And it numbs up nerves in 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 basically a layer in between two muscle layers. And that's what gives you the prolonged pain control. That's fascinating. And so you said the first patient you you did this on required no opioid pain meds afterwards, which I think is a really fantastic outcome. Yeah, we were were absolutely floored by how successful um, we were in decreasing the immediate post-operative opioid requirement. What was a little bit harder to tease out was um, what patients were taking when they went home. And so previously in talking with the nurse coordinator, Stacy Warnicky, we would see that patients would take narcotics or opioids, most, most likely oxycodone afterwards, fairly regularly, sometimes requiring an extra prescription refill and sometimes requiring um, you know, a re- delayed return to work notes, which is really important when you're thinking about the population that's going to be donating, um, usually these patients are like productive citizens. They need to get back to work. They need to get back to their lives. And that becomes not only with pain, a huge reason 
to avoid donating. It's like, how, how am I going to fit this into my busy lifestyle? And so once we started um, doing this uh, numbing shot to help with pain control, we were, we were able to prescribe less um, oxycodone afterwards. We've given no refills and we've not written any um, delay return to work notes. So none, none, zero. Wow. That's yeah. really fantastic. Yeah. It's amazing. Well, let's let's talk about that block. I, I wrote a couple of notes here. This the QL block. Yes. Can you maybe describe that a little bit <laughs> sure. to us? Yeah. So this is the quadratus lamorum block. Um, the the QL muscle um, lies on both sides of your lower back. Um, it's a deep muscle, and there was a lot of research going on about like what if you inject a numbing medicine behind or near this muscle, what would it what would it numb up? So it is mostly used for lower anterior abdominal surgery. It does a good job in the front part of the abdomen, especially the lower part. And again, it works, uh, it helps with pain control during the procedure. It doesn't negate the need to be usually asleep um, under what we call general anesthesia, but it helps a lot with pain control afterwards. So there were some reports that um, surgeons and anesthesiologists have used this for lumbar laminectomies, which is a surgery on the lateral portion of the vertebrae in the lower back. And so I thought, well, if it's if it's helpful in that case, it may be helpful on where they're doing the harvesting from, which the technical term is the posterior iliac crest. So the you're basically the top most back portion of your hip bone. And um, so we were able to see that it pretty consistently numbed patients up in that area. Um, and you do get, get some numbness in the front part, but it's, you know, the patients can't really tell because that's not where they're having surgery. So, uh, but we use the ultrasound machine to do it. Adult patients that we do this for will have it done in uh, the pre-op area with a little bit of sedation before they go back to the OR, um, which is good because it also um, allows them to have less uh, anesthesia time. So we can knock that procedure out before they go back to the operating room. In our pediatric patients, because we've started doing the same thing, we to be equitable, um, we think that the kids deserve the same adequate pain control. Uh, so we actually do this procedure after they're asleep under general anesthesia. And that is mostly due to um, compliance. Um, we need the patient to be still, um, for, for the most part still, but it's much easier in the pediatric patients to do it when they're asleep. And um, there's good pediatric anesthesia data that um, the safety profile of doing it asleep is, is just as good as in the adults. All right, Dr. Jesse, are you convinced yet? Are you going to sign up? <laughs> I am, you know, I, I you know, even as someone who's had surgery in the past and refused to take oxycodone afterwards, I just don't like the idea of taking opioids. And so the idea that there is a way to mitigate the pain to minimize the likelihood uh, that I would need to actually is really appealing as well. So I'm almost there. <laughs> <laughs> well, talk a little bit about what, you know, what the, the discussion here is about innovation and, and it sounds like you are right in that sweet spot. Talk to me a little bit about your your pediatric um, experience feeding into this, because I would imagine, you know, uh, physicians' sensitivity to the pain of their patient, I would imagine, would be even higher if that patient is a child. Tell me a little bit about how that how that perspective played into how you approach doing this treatment now. Like, I personally, I have a little bit of a different background, just... Um, Maybe this will shed some light too. I actually was a general pediatrician for five years before I went back to do anesthesia. And I, I was looking for a career. I mean, I found it in peds anesthesia. It's exactly, exactly what I dreamed my career and life goals would be. But 
because of that, I think I look at all patients, even adults, a little bit differently. You know, I'm not just here to make sure all of the general anesthesia things, like the boxes are checked. Like you have your procedure, you're safe, you're comfortable, you get home in an appropriate amount of time. Like I want want to take care of you, I want to take care of your family. And I think that's just a product of the way of all my general peds training and how it was more of a family-centered and patient-centered home, which has carried over a lot into how I practice now. So I I was very, um, I didn't just show up to work and, and say, okay, let me staff this case and see you later. I was, I was honestly intrigued by how does this patient like go about their daily functioning tomorrow? And I actually, I think what really solidified it for me was that um, one of the first patients that I took care of that not that we did not do this procedure for was a family member donating to another family member. And I saw them outside the hospital the next day after their procedure, and they just didn't look fabulous. I felt like we could have done a better job of making them... and. Another caveat is when you have a family member donating with a family member, they have to be there for that other person. They have to care for their child. They have to care for their parent. They have to care for their sibling. Um, or And they want to be. Sure, and so yeah. let's give them the best experience we can. Um, if we can really make them comfortable, then they can actually participate in a useful, healthy, happy way, supportive way for their family member. And so I think that's how I've approached each of my patients. I mean, I think that's how I approach my patients every day, but this project in particular was really, um, had, it was really, has been really special to me. Have you seen an increase in, uh, people signing up or being willing, I guess maybe going that extra step and actually donating, uh, because you're able to explain sort of these pain mitigation, uh, factors that we have. (laughs) I would like to say, I hope that's the outcome. Um, and honestly, I think that is our, our ultimate goal is to really, um, show, um, programs like the national mayor donor program that we can actually, if, if you go to their website, you know, it says like, you shouldn't be worried about pain, which you shouldn't, like, you really should not be a donor and you should not be worried about pain. That is a totally true statement, but we need to be more proactive about you know, publicizing why they shouldn't be worried about pain. And I think um, if you look at some studies like healthcare related quality of life um, has like a little bit of a dip after these procedures if pain isn't well treated. And again, for families who are donating to their own family members and then those who are just doing it to be altruistic because they got called up and they're a match and this is important to them, um, we have to get them back to their daily functioning. And we do not want to have any risk or untoward side effects that prevent them from continuing to contribute to their to society and their families. Well, hopefully this podcast can be part of that amplification of the message uh, to get it out there that there is a reason why you don't have to be so worried about the pain associated with bone marrow. Agreed. Agreed. Uh, harvesting. All right. Let's talk a little bit about the specifics of the procedure and maybe some of the things that happened during the procedure, such as uh, heart rate and blood pressure. I get asked this question a lot, like, how do you know someone is in pain when they're asleep under anesthesia? So good question. Um, And I think it's very confusing to um, people in the community or people who are non-medical, or actually, to be honest, people who aren't anesthesiologists. So things that we look for that are indicators of pain while patients are under anesthesia are uh, an increase in the heart rate, 
um, and an increase in the blood pressure. Those two things uh, typically signify some sort of change that most often can be associated with a painful stimulus. Uh, so for example, at the beginning of a surgery, um, when the surgeon starts, uh, if there is not uh, adequate pain control at that time, you'll see an increase in the heart rate and blood pressure. And so those were those were the indicators we were seeing um, prior to incorporating this uh, numbing injection. Um, we would see a lot of changes in heart rate and blood pressure throughout the case, which also led to additional administration of pain medications in the operating room. So not only did we, an interesting um, caveat is not only did we decrease the amount of pain medicine given in the recovery room because patients were just not having pain, we also saw less swings, uh, increases in heart rate and blood pressure or indicators of pain during the surgery so we could cut down on uh, opioid administration while they were under anesthesia. And that's really critical um, in thinking about opioid-induced side effects. So um, constipation, nausea, itching, a lot of things that pay, a lot of side effects patients have after surgery or in general when they're taking an opioid or a narcotic. And so um, we were able to decrease both the administration or providing um, pain medication during the procedure and after. And, and also feeling comfortable that we weren't just not giving it because we didn't want to, we were giving it, we were avoiding giving it because we weren't seeing those big swings in heart rate and blood pressure like we had been seeing before. Does that make sense? Yeah. The need for the pain medicine was less. Exactly. Nicole, now that I think everyone listening to this is going to be convinced that you've figured out with your fantastic collaborators how to um, minimize some of the side effects of doing this in terms of pain, uh, how does one go about signing up for the registry and, and what type of information is required when they go to do that? It's actually very, very easy. It only takes a few minutes. You just do it through the NMDP website, um, and they'll send you an at-home kit where you do a cheek swab. You send it back, and that's it. For the most part, um, it's a simple, easy process. And I, I noticed over in the wellness center, there's often some college like health professions table set up trying to recruit people. The hard part is I don't think people understand what they're signing up for by just walking up to a table. Um, it's one of those things that you you probably know somebody or you read a little bit about, but um, having more donors in the donor pool is just going to continue to have available people to save lives. And I think that's what this ultimately boils down to, having you know, some amazing altruistic people that are signed up and then taking the best care possible and making sure that they have a good experience. That's ultimately it, having, having a good experience. I think that's fantastic. And I can say anecdotally, I was listening to an, another podcast uh, called The Happiness Lab, um, and it's all on the science of why people are happy. And one of the episodes is in, focused on giving altruistically. So people who give altruistically tend to be much happier than individuals who don't. And um, they actually specifically look at uh, people who donate kidneys uh, to a non-family member and how these individuals tend to be like the happiest people that they can find <laughs> scientifically. And it's just because of the act of, of just doing something in entirely selfless. So um, that is one of my catalyst reasons for, for contemplating doing this. But I think I am going to sign up. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go online and do the cheap swap. Yes, yes. And again, it takes five minutes. And, and the, you know, the nice part about the being a bone marrow donor is it's not, it's not 
it's not as um, involved as being a kidney a kidney donor. Like you're not without that organ for the rest of your life. You will your bone marrow will regenerate. It's a fabulously interesting process. I've learned so much about it from my um, hematology colleagues. And um, really, you you might be fatigued for a couple of weeks, but that's you know that's pretty much it. So um, I think I think you should. Yeah, I think I can survive being a little bit fatigued to be <laughs> a lot more happy. There, there you go. go. There you go. There you it's go. like a trade-off. <laughs> Let's kind of land the plane with maybe a um, an ask from you as as a physician to potential donors out there, like Dr. Goodwin. Uh, talk to them. Maybe give them an overview, the elevator pitch for why it's important to be a, a donor and why it's safe and more comfortable than ever. Yeah. Your simple act of swabbing your cheek puts you in this amazing registry that uh, can actually save someone's life. And it could be a baby on the other side of the world. It could be someone in your own community. And there are very few things in life where, you, you know, just just saying I'm willing to sign up to try and save someone's life. I don't think there are very many things like that that exist. So, you know, signing up is the first step. And and I think getting the message out there that we can do better to help you with pain control. Not everywhere in the country is going to be set up to facilitate the kind of workflow that we had here. But by way of uh, sharing our process and our, you know, our, our hiccups and our successes with other institutions across the nation, we can provide a framework that other people can follow to provide similar um, care to patients undergoing bone marrow harvesting. So knowing that there are options out there for pain control other than opioids and narcotics, which is very, very important to a lot of people, and knowing that there are resources um, like our own institution willing to provide education to other anesthesia departments or um, hematology, oncology, bone marrow transplant departments that we can we can show your team how to take better care of patients. So on that note, have you had other institutions reaching out for help with this process? Yes. Um, by way of some networking I do through the Society of Peds Anesthesia, as well as some requests through the Eureka Alert, um, it actually was news blasted to our an- um, anesthesia governing body's news email weekly email letter. And so I've actually gotten a few requests to share the protocol with other institutions. And these are academic institutions which are set up with a pain service that can do, um, that could, you know, could easily set this up. But I have a generic protocol I'm able to um, email. And actually, I think the article itself um, has supplementary material with the protocol in it. So really anyone, it's an open access article, so anyone can see it, anyone can look at the protocol. But it's been really fun to actually actually share my uh, my project, uh, our project, in fact, with um, some other really big name institutions around the country. I think it's fantastic and how gratifying it must feel to be able to contribute to driving best practices forward and advancing your own field. So it is. Congratulations to you. Thank you so much. Changing what's possible, right? Yes, exactly. So, Nicole, we've talked a lot about the benefits of doing the nerve block in terms of pain mitigation and, and uh, decreasing opioid use over time. Uh, are there any downsides to the to the nerve block in and of itself, either during the procedure or uh, after the procedure? That's a, that's a great question and so important when discussing with patients the risks and benefits of adding an additional procedure. Um, so, for this procedure itself, the risk is very, very low um, of any complications. Anytime we 
put a needle in the body, whether it's an IV or for a nerve block such as this, uh, there's a risk of bleeding and infection. Albeit extremely low, um, we do the procedure using a sterile needle and we clean the skin very well beforehand. Um, additionally, there's no major blood vessels where we're injecting this medication. So the likelihood of causing any major bleeding is extremely low um, and the risk of causing any um, uh, negative effects from injecting the numbing medicine into a blood vessel is also very low. Those are the main things we talk to patients about. An interesting caveat with regional anesthesia is one of the main risks is actually a failed block. So I always tell my patients that there is a risk that for some reason based on your anatomy or just the technique that we use on every other patient just didn't work and you could wake up in pain. It's called a failed block. Um, it's not out of the realm of possibilities. And in that case, you would need to take some opioids or narcotics and that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. And again, I tell patients, if you're having breakthrough pain, it is okay to take an opioid um, if you need it. But one of the risks is a failed block. And so it's important that um, we discuss with patients that there's a small potential for this not to work, but it's going to be okay. You're not going to be an extremist after the procedure in the event that the block fails. If it didn't work, you would just do the, the, the normal uh, pain mitigation on the back end with opioids, right? I mean, right. that's what would normally be before this procedure. Exactly, so, yeah. exactly. So in any case where we do regional anesthesia or a numbing injection to numb up an arm, a leg, um, you know, the back or the belly, um, if patients wake up in their recovery room and they're hurting, then obviously we're going to administer some pain medication. And that can be an indicator of the block not working. In some instances, we can repeat it in the recovery room, but many times uh, we are able to treat it treat the pain adequately with some opioid medications. Have you had the block not work? Um, I in, have had two patients uh, who have required, to, let me rephrase that, two adult patients who have required opioids in the recovery room. They were uh, unique individuals in that their um, procedures were very long and very involved meaning there was a large amount of bone marrow harvested from each of these patients. And there is some information in the scientific literature that longer, um, more higher volume bone marrow harvest can be more painful. It, it makes sense. And so those patients each required a couple of doses of IV narcotics in the recovery room. On their phone follow-up calls, they actually did not take any pain medication after they got home and had long car rides home and didn't take anything in the car ride. So there was some aspect of their uh, nerve block that was working uh, for prolonged you know, pain, pain relief. I want to be very transparent with all of my patients that this is not, you know, a hundred percent guarantee to work. Um, it is very, very close to a hundred percent, but not a hundred percent. And so in the off chance that you are that very small percentage, it's not going to work. Don't worry. We're still going to treat your pain. We're not going to let you sit and suffer. Um, we just, I, you know, that's just me being transparent. We've talked about the, the, the nerve block that you've been doing. Have you made any other modifications to the way that you've approached this procedure uh, in either your pediatric or your adult population? Actually, we've made a big change um, since we've opened the Children's Hospital. Uh, we noticed that uh, related donors were being done, or, sorry, we're having their bone marrow harvest done at the adult hospital. Then having to come across campus um, many hours later to be with their family members. And often they were missing the transplants. And that's one of the 
one uh, driving factor for related donors is, again, we want them to be with their family for their transplant, which usually happens a couple of hours after the harvest. So what we, we talked with hospital leadership about moving these adults to have their bone marrow harvest procedures done in the pediatric ORs so that they are there when adults and, and all of, obviously all of the children are going to be done at the children's hospital. But when we say adults, this is parents donating to their children or an adult donating to their sibling or their own parent. Um, Again, typically those would be done at the adult hospital, but uh, we felt that since the family members are either housed at the Ashley River Tower or at Sean Jenkins, that it just made sense for them to have their procedure and recover uh, at the Children's Hospital. And it has really helped with uh, getting patients to their families more quickly and uh, availability of family members to stay with the patient who's just undergone the procedure. Because often they were by themselves in the recovery room and now we have a much more family-centered care model, which has, I think, also increased patient satisfaction. So from the research I've been doing, this is obviously very close to your heart. This is your baby. Talk a little bit about why that is. Why, why is this so something you're so passionate about? <laughs> um, well, this was something I kind of had to uh, learn a lot about uh, myself and, and how proposing an idea that is really outside the box um, takes a lot of work. But the most amazing thing was it was so satisfying. Working with all of the different groups of people I, I was able to work with and continue to work with was just so um, satisfactory for my career and well-being in my job. Um, working on a project that I could see was making a difference and providing joy and hope and pain relief, uh, I don't know, it just uh, really makes you love your job. And nothing about this was ever work. So anytime I was working on this, uh, working on the protocol, working on um, meeting with statistician, uh, trying to work on getting this research published, it never was work because I enjoyed every moment of um, the patient population, the proceduralists. Um, I got to do my my job. I got to take care of every, almost every one of these patients by myself. Um, and it just uh, provided a really good, um, I don't know, I, I think career satisfaction is really, was really underlying it. Thomas Edison, I think, is famously quoted as saying that an innovation is 1% inspiration and 99% perspiration. So it's, it's just a lot of effort to carry something over the finish line. Um, but I think it's great when something can become a labor of love such that that 99% perspiration that it takes to get it there can just bring immense uh, gratification to you personally as yes. you're working on it. Um, just, you know, it's the way to keep it going and to really feel like the work is meaningful. Oh, it's incredibly meaningful and to have other institutions reach out um, and want to learn more about it and potentially implement it um, in in their hospital systems um, makes me really proud. And it should. Well, thank you so much for being a guest today. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. You've been listening to the Innovatively Speaking podcast with the Medical University of South Carolina. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to support the show, leave a rating and review. To hear more innovative ideas and to share your own, subscribe to the show or visit us on our webpage, web.musc.edu slash innovation. And remember, don't hesitate to innovate.